an initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Dave, or is it Mr. Schmiesing? I knew him as Dave when I went, went to school here. Dave um, mentioned that I just came from Rome today, and I came from Rome. I, I was in uh, Rome last night with Cardinal Dolan, and we were doing a broadcast on Sirius XM radio with a bunch of college students. There were about 75 college students who were um, studying a semester abroad in, in Rome, and we did a, um, a broadcast uh, from a bar in Rome, a bar slash restaurant, Cardinal Dolan's favorite from when he was a student there and when he was rector of the, of the North American College. And at about 11.30 last night, I don't know exactly what day that was, but so it was 11.30 last night, Rome time, so it would have been 6.30 or 5.30 p.m. yesterday, um, Steubenville time. Um, he said to me, so what are we doing tomorrow or something like that? And I said, well, I'm leaving tomorrow morning at 6.30. What do you mean you're leaving tomorrow morning at 6.30? He knows he has to be there until the 28th of, of October during the Synod of Bishops. And I said, well, I'm, I'm going, I'm, as we talked about before, I'm leaving tomorrow morning and I'm going back for other commitments. Why are you leaving tomorrow morning? <laughs> oh no, I know what's gonna happen. He's gonna say, you should stay here, there's this, we still have this or that to do. And so I said, your eminence, I'm going back to give a talk at Franciscan University. He said, oh, okay, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> And I didn't tell him I was also going back to visit my sister and my brother-in-law and my mom and dad, and I thought Franciscan University would be a better excuse, and it worked. <laughs> but as I walked in and I saw my sister, who's here tonight, the irony of being back in this wonderful place hit me um, in a different way. Uh, Joy, I don't know if I ever told you this story, but. Um, or if you remember this, but I was, as uh, Mr. Schmiesing mentioned, studying business here at Franciscan University, and I w through really my roommate who's also here, Mr. Young, Rhett Young, um, who was thinking about being a priest at the time, um, and eight kids later, he's not a priest, but uh, <laughs> he inspired me to think about it. And one thing led to another, I ended up deciding to leave to go to the seminary. And we were having a party back at my family's house in Akron, Ohio. And uh, my sister Joy, who was here tonight, um, started crying. And she said, I feel like this is a funeral. She goes, I feel like this is a wake. I feel like this is a wake because she says, you know, that Jonathan, who I know, you know, is not going to be around anymore, and we're never going to hear from him again, or something like that. We're never going to hear from him again. Now she says, oh my gosh, we hear from you way too much. <laughs> On the television, or in writing, or whatever it happens to be, or showing up in her, her hometown here in Steubenville. And isn't that the way God works? in mysterious and wonderfully mysterious ways, that we can have our ideas of what 
life is going to be like and what we're going to do. And that's wonderful to have. And we should have those plans and those dreams and those aspirations. And I'm going to be the very best doctor. I'm going to be the very best lawyer. I'm going to be the very best husband or wife. And God willing, that will all happen. But we also know that if we're open to what God wants of us, he's going to lead us along a path that is much more exciting and, quite honestly, much more difficult than we would ever expect. And that's been my life um, over these last uh, 15 um, years. I say 15 is probably closer to 20, but 15 sounds better since I left Franciscan University, almost 20. Um, and I, what I want to share with you tonight is basically that, about what these years have been and how it is that um, all of us who have faith and who believe deeply in um, God's plan for not only our lives, but for our country, for um, our society, for our church, um, what that might look like in terms of our own decision making. Over the last 15, 20 years, I've been away from the Midwest pretty much. Um, I've been living in big cities mostly. I lived in Rome for nine years, and I've been living in uh, New York City for the last four years. And when I was in the Midwest uh, just last week, I was out walking, um, which is a euphemism um, for playing golf. Um, and I noticed how clean the squirrels are in the Midwest. I don't know if you guys have noticed that, but enjoy it next time you see a squirrel. It's like they've all just taken a bath. <laughs> They're all brown and nice. And when we're living in a place and then come back and all of a sudden we find ourselves in an environment or situation in which something as simple as a squirrel looks clean, it's a good moment to say, you know what, maybe what I'm looking at in general, not just in terms of the nature or the beauty around me, but in general, the culture and the context of truth and, and what is good and what is beautiful maybe might, uh, might be a little bit distorted. I always thought squirrels in the Bronx were black. I'm being so, seriously, over the last four years, I mean, honestly, they're very dark. Because I was sent to a parish in the Bronx. They were very dark looking. I come back here and they're like all very, very light brown. A very simple thing. But the fact is we're living in a culture. We're living in a world right now in which good sometimes looks bad. And bad sometimes look good. And where is that more prevalent, more prominent than in the media? I'm not sure if there's any other place. Let me tell you a little bit about how I got involved in media. And while telling you these stories, I hope I'm not just telling you a story about me, but telling you a story about what your life is going to be like in one way or the other, whether it has something to do with the media or not. When I left for the priesthood, there were times that was a little bit like my sister Joy and my family didn't hear from me much when I went through the first years of, of formation. But when I was ordained a priest and um, almost immediately afterwards, as Mr. Schmiesing mentioned, I got involved 
in the making of the film The Passion of the Christ. How many of you here have seen the film The Passion of the Christ? Okay. You know, that was a huge blockbuster, right? But it wasn't always believed that that movie was going to be a blockbuster. I remember being on the set of The Passion in Rome. It was filmed mostly in Rome. It was filmed um, some also down in a little town in, in southern Italy called Matera. But most of it was filmed in the famous um, film studios, Cinicita in Rome. And I remember being in a, um, a, tra a trailer with Mel Gibson, with Jim Caviezel, the actor who played Jesus, with a guy named Steve McAvity, who was uh, the executive producer, um, a guy named Caleb, who was the head of cinematography, um, and one other gentleman. And we're in this little tiny trailer, okay? If you guys have ever been to a movie set, you have these trailers where all the actors um, go and they spend time while they're not on the, you know, on the set. And it's, they don't put the name of the actor, they put the name of the character that they're playing. And so this was very strange, you know? And, <laughs> and, and there in Chinichita, you have, you know, Peter, John, Mary Magdalene, right? Mary, the mother of Jesus. Um, and then there was one that was Mel Gibson. Okay, <laughs> and I was in this trailer that was Mel Gibson, and there were things flying around this little tiny trailer. It was um, pita bread and olive oil and olives and all these things that were really good food that's really good, but they were flying around because everybody was really upset because Mel Gibson had decided that he was going to put fifty million dollars of his own money into a movie because he felt like God wanted him to do it. And things were going really bad. Now think of your guys' image, or the students that are here, of Mel Gibson might be a little bit different than 10 years ago. 10 years ago, Mel Gibson's image was that of the sexiest man in the world, the man, one of the most wealthy actors of all time, one of the most highly respected directors and actors. And all of a sudden, after he did something crazy, like actually do what he thought God wanted him to do, he found him in a, himself in a position in which nobody, nobody was willing to support him. People now who wish they would have invested in that film and who didn't in that, in that moment. And he started saying, and I remember very clearly saying to me at that moment, what was I thinking? What was I thinking? Time Magazine at this time is outside getting ready to do a hit piece on this film because it was supposed to be anti-Semitic. And he was saying, what was I thinking? And when he says, what was I thinking, he was referring to a time when he was making another film that was very different than this one called What Women Want. Has anybody seen that film? You don't have to raise your hand. <laughs> I saw it too. It's not as bad as it sounded, as it sounds. And he was on this, the set of making What Women Want, and he was, he had this idea in his head. Okay, it wasn't just the idea of what women think. Remember, that's what the movie is all about, right? Like he knew how to read um, women's 
minds, right? And that's why he was such a genius. And no man ever since has been able to do that. Right? <laughs> Just, and he said, at that moment, what was really going through his head was, I have to make the passion. I have to make a movie about the passion of the Christ. So here it is, a moment in which he is saying to himself, what was I thinking? Well, what he was thinking in that moment, we can say now, was not crazy, but it was the Holy Spirit. Now, what's happened ever since, that's another mystery too. A total mystery of God working through unbelievable humanity like he does with all of us, giving us opportunities, but also giving us moments for struggles, moments to come back, moments to be redeemed, moments to fall. And it hasn't been easy, but what I know for sure is that a weak person like Mel Gibson, a weak person like you and me, was inspired in the midst of something that he was not at all interested in doing on his own, as he was making this other movie, he was inspired to do something great. And there were huge consequences. I'm gonna give you one example of a consequence. And I'm sure you guys could tell me stories of other consequences, maybe in your own life when you saw that film. But there was one moment that was right around the same time in which he was going through this very tough time. We were all going through a tough time because we didn't know if this was going to be the biggest flop in the world. And Mel was still saying, no, I, you know, going against every other suggestion out there, he's saying, not only you know, am I going to make it only in Aramaic and Latin, I'm also, at the time, he was thinking, I don't want to put any subtitles on whatsoever. Now there's subtitles, right? Well, as he was going through all of that and trying to figure out what is the right thing to do, there were all these people on the set who were also involved in the media. He got involved in this project who were really upset too because they started realizing, you know what, I committed my own fame and my own reputation to this movie, and what happened? It looks like it's going to be a flop. Time Magazine is making fun of us out there. One of those guys was a guy named Peter, Pedro, who was playing the actor Barabbas. Is that how you say it in English? Barabbas. Barabbas, right? Barabbas. Do you remember, this? Do you remember that scene? Jim Caviezel, playing Jesus, was up on top of praetorium there and he has these chains all around him and he's walking down and Barabbas is there and he's in this nasty, nasty uh, personality, persona. And he's spitting at Jesus and he's calling him names. And remember the people of God, all of us, including the Jewish leaders, were out there watching and Pilate is asking them, who do you want? Do you want Jesus? Or do you want Barabbas? And of course, we know what they were saying. But Mel Gibson at this point was so upset. He's like, this is not working. And he was upset at Jim, and Jim wasn't doing, he, he wasn't getting it. And Jim Caviezel came down and walked down those steps, and he was still dragging his, his chains, and they were heavy chains. These were, not, these were not plastic. And he comes walking down, and he starts talking to me, and he goes, as he's watching all of the 
Jewish leaders there standing in for all of us, and also as he's seeing Barabbas, who would not go out of his character, even though it was not, we were not filming at the time, and he was still spitting at, spitting at Jim and yelling at Jim. And it's funny to us now, but imagine when you're not doing your job well and the director is mad about all these other things, and Jim is ticked off at Pedro, the actor. Just get out of character, would you? Stop being a jerk about this. He comes down, he talks to me, and he says, Father, what do, you, what do you think Jesus would have been thinking at this moment in salvation history? He, he was saying, how do I play Jesus? It's a question we can ask ourselves, right? How can I play Jesus? And immediately what I was thinking, and Jim thought of it at the same time, was, well, this is the turning point, actually, in salvation history, right? This is when we say, do we want evil or do we want good? Do we want beautiful or do we want ugly? Do we want sin or do we want virtue? But then both of us looked up at Barabbas at the same time and thought the same thing. Jim was actually, he actually had the Eucharist with him under his shirt at the time there was a chaplain there who gave him permission i don't know uh, turned out well let's put it that way <laughs> that it wasn't me and he he looked he we both looked up at barabbas and we thought you know what yes this was a turning point in salvation history but this guy named Barabbas, who was sick and ugly and disgusting and sinful and had killed people, he was the son, the creature of God, the beloved brother and son of Jesus. And so all of a sudden, Jim looked up and he went right back up walked right up with all those chains and the scene takes place in which Mel says let's go to it Jim comes walking down and there's a moment in which he looks over at Barabbas and they catch each other's eyes next time you see it watch it listen to what that actor had to say about that moment Unfortunately, he says, as I gradually became used to the routine of my profession, I lost contact with the research and the quality of life and became more and more cynical and superficial. Mel Gibson saw me in the film Captain Corelli's Mandolin and offered me the part of Barabbas in the film The Passion. I was concerned about how big a part I would have, how much they would pay me, and how much publicity would bring me. I was unhappy to find that Barabbas had nothing to say something really humiliating for actors of a certain standing. At the end of the screen test, I went to Mel Gibson and told him I was enthusiastic to work with him, but couldn't accept the non-speaking part. He took me to one side in a fatherly way and explained that this will be a beautiful and very important film, and that my dumb Barabbas will be more important for me and for the film than any other speaking role in an ordinary film. You will use the power of your look like all the actors in this film, he said, 
We did the filming and I went on complaining. During the third week of filming, when I came down the first stairway of the Sanhedrin, my eyes met the eyes of the actor Jim Caviezel. And it was like an electric shock came over me. A great emotion. And I carried that wonder with me and my life began to change. I have the feeling that something really happened and that look was there, but it was really between Pedro and Christ. It was something enormous and it sent me into complete confusion. Why did it happen? This question keeps coming back to me. I give this story just one among thousands and thousands and thousands of others that could be told, of course, about God's grace. But that was my introduction into the world of media, in which I saw the huge impact of that film. I also saw that there was, in the midst of all the goodness that was going on, there was also powers of evil that were trying to stop this film. I remember once late at night going with the ex executive producer, Steve Caviti, and um, going up in, in the Vatican and getting it up into the private um, apartment of the Pope and giving it to his secretary and trying to get him to see it for the next day. And then the Pope came out uh, two days later and with that famous quote, it is as it, it is as it was, all this. But there was so much, even church politics that were involved that didn't want it to happen. Guys, ladies, gentlemen, if you're going to get involved with media, if you're going to get involved with anything, it's not going to be, I'm going to go convert this world that needs me so much. It's going to be, there's a mission. God has a mission for me. There's a need. I'm going to get involved, and it's going to be really hard. And if I'm not the very, very best at it, I'm not going to have an influence. We were talking tonight at dinner with Father Terry, and, and he brought up um, the great point of, um, together with with Mr. Schmiesing that, you know, with holiness and sanctity and all the rest that is so important and, and the most important thing in our lives, but that is not a substitution for professional, for professional success or professional aptitude. If we think we're going to change, if we think we could have somehow changed the world in the way that passion did without the intellectual and the creative genius of Mel Gibson, we're very wrong. We don't go and make beautiful spiritual movies and think we're going to change the world with them. We have to become the very best at what we do. That brings us, and it really brought in my, my life to the point of the, of the death of John Paul II when John Paul II was very sick and dying. And I remember John Paul II, of course, is a great communicator, the great communicating pope. And I was in St. Peter's Square with my mom and dad and the, the week before he died. And they wheeled John Paul II, I don't know if, how many of you remember this, but they wheeled John Paul II in front of the window overlooking St. Peter's Square, and everybody knew that he was sick and uh, very sick and dying, and the media had come from all over the world. And John Paul II said, I'm going out there. It was for the Sunday audience. And they wheeled him out, and he looked out there, and his hands were holding onto the papers, and he was trembling like this, you know, with his Parkinson's. 
And of course, the Vatican didn't want to tell anybody that he had Parkinson's, which is really stupid, okay? The Vatican does stupid things sometimes. That's okay, right? Not, not stupid theology, but stupid things, okay? And John Paul II is going like this, and then all of a sudden, he couldn't, he, so he couldn't get the words out. What did, so what did he do? He went like this. Boom. This, that, that doesn't sound very good. It was like, boom, boom, boom. That's all he could do. But he knew because he had worked at it, because he had become professional at it, because he had taken his communication seriously, that he couldn't just push his wheelchair back and go back into the papal palaces. With that fist, he was saying, I love you. I care about you. I know you. I want to communicate with you. But I can't. But I can. I can't, but I can. And for the next three or four weeks, the media that was watching him took on that story like no other story that I can think of in recent times. In fact, just this last week when I was in Rome, I went and I did the normal um, Sunday morning segment that I do on, on, on uh, Fox News from a studio in Rome, and they still had these banners up of the media um, mo moments of greatest glory. And at the top of every one of the ratings was John Paul II's death. Okay? And that was seven, what was it, seven and a half years ago? John Paul II, an 80-some-year-old guy's death was the greatest uh, ratings draw that they had. It was during that time that I started getting, getting involved in um, the news media. And I'm going to tell you the story of how I got, uh, how I did, how I got involved, not because it matters about me, but, but because how it can relate to you as you go forth as students, um, interested in communication, interested in evangelizing. Um, I start, when uh, all the news media descended upon Rome, what they were looking for really is um, not only for their anchors to have, um, to be there and to tell a story, but also they, they need experts, right? To make them sound intelligent, right? And so if they can't find experts, they find people they can pass off as experts, which is my case, right? I was, I was uh, a newly ordained priest just studying, doing graduate studies in Rome. Um, they knew I had worked in the Passion, and so they could kind of present me as that. And I remember I started working uh, first with CNN, and then about a, a week into it, Fox News came up and said, a, 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 uh, a booker from Fox News said, hey, uh, Father, would you like to come over and do things with us? And I said, sure. So I walked, I walked over to um, the Fox News channel and I did uh, a segment with them. And immediately CNN came over to me and said, Father Jonathan, what are you doing? And I said, well, I, I was just did a segment with the Fox News channel. No, 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 but you're with us. Not really. I'm with the Catholic Church, actually, <laughs> you know? I mean, I'm, the reason why I'm doing this is because of that guy up there who's sick. And they said, no, 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 but you should stay with us. And I said, okay, uh, why? And they said, well, you know, 
and they couldn't come up with a reason, so they said, well, we'll pay you. We'll pay you. And I said, well, well gosh. Um, at the time, I was a religious order priest. I said, you know what? Um, I don't know how this is going to sound to you, but I have a vow of poverty. <laughs> and they said, well, um, they had no clue how to. And, and so I, I went over to, Fo to Fox News, and, and they, they said, um, I said, you know, they, they, they don't want me to go on Fox News anymore. They want me to. And they said, what, what are they going to do? They said they're going to pay me. And they said, how much? And I said, well, then I started thinking, well, I did study business at Franciscan University. Right? <laughs> and even if the money's not going to me, it can go to some, something good, right? So I said, well, um, I probably shouldn't um, tell you that. And C CNN had said, we're going to pay you $300 a day during this time. And I sa they said, well, but just hold on, Father. This is the Fox News Channel. And they said, we're, we'll get right back to you. And they said, they came back and they said, um, we'll offer you 2500 a day. And I said, I am glad I didn't. And I, and I said, well, how about 3000 He said, okay, 3000 that's fine. And what, what I learned from that, first of all, was, and what I learned, and I'm going to tell you about this, how it, it developed afterwards, was they, it was an extremely intense period, okay? And there was a lot of money being thrown at this just three-week period, right? They had spent all that money, imagine all that money that was going into sending all their people over to Rome. They had a three-week period. They were competing with each other. There was tons of... Of, of effort putting into it. And in the end, at the end of the day, what did they want? They wanted content. They wanted content. And when it comes to this story, right, which was, in this case, the Pope and the church and, and suffering and um, all the teachings of the church because there was this three weeks period, all they, they needed content and nobody could provide that Outside the church, of course, there are a lot of people within the church who could provide it. Um, at the end of that period um, of about three weeks or so, I, um, Fox News said to me, Father Jonathan, I, uh, we'd like you to continue. And I said, why would you want me to continue working? And they said, ah. And then I started realizing it was, ah, because they elected an old pope. So this guy will probably die pretty soon, so we better just keep, keep you on. And I said to them, you know what? I don't, as a priest, and as a priest in, in my field of study, of graduate studies was ethics, moral theology. I said, I don't want to just talk about Pope stuff. There's more to talk about. And they said, well, what would you talk about? <laughs> and so I remember going and going to New York and meeting with executives. In this case, it was with the Fox News Channel. Um, and there, was, there were um, two non-practicing Catholics in the room. There were two um, non-practicing, so, so, so to speak, Jewish um, producers in the room. There was a strong evangelical in the room, and then there was kind of like a watered-down um, kind of main, mainline Protestant um, in the room. And, but the guy who was leading the, the discussion said, you know, we've come up with this, this new plan. We're going to have Father Jonathan um, talk as 
serve as a news analyst with us, and he's just going to talk about news from his ordinary news from his perspective. And I remember one of our good fellow Catholic brethren, Ray saying, oh, I'm not very comfortable with that, you know, because why just a Catholic, you know? And it's like, ah, you know, there's a good Irish Catholic in the room helping me out there, right? But what they decided was, and it was through their test, that they would, that people actually wanted information about how to deal with ordinary news from an ethical perspective. Six months later, I remember the, when the executive who had set this up called me in and he said, he said, Father Jonathan, he said, we have never received a more consistent response from our viewers than when you come on television. I said, well, what is that? And I know my sister's not gonna believe this because I grew up with her and my, six, my other five brothers and sisters would not believe this. And they, they said, when, when the response we get from our viewers is when you talk, when you talk about more moral issues, when you talk about spiritual issues, when you talk about religious issues, they tell us they experience peace. And I say, my sister's not gonna believe it because she remembers me chasing after her and arguing with her and my brothers and sisters and the house and all the rest. The good news is that it's not about you or me. It's about we have content in the, not only the theology of the church, not only in our, the, the doctrine of our faith, but in the social doctrine, the social teachings of the church about politics, about economics, about, um, about the role of government, about so many other issues that we have a huge tradition that we're able to speak with confidence. Yes, of course, there are prudential issues that we have to come up with what we believe and we have to come up with a defense for that. But the need out there right now is so strong of not just saying, I'm right because I'm a Republican, I'm right because I'm a Democrat, but rather, here is a way forward that if you follow it, because the principle is true, Maybe the application will be different, but because the principle is true, if you follow it, there's going to be peace. I've been doing this with the, the Fox News Channel for the last seven years now. And the more I've gotten involved with it, the more I've realized that, first of all, not only is it a great opportunity to give um, principles of truth and of peace um, to, the, to the listeners, but also I find myself as a priest in an environment in which it's basically like a chaplain for in a in a working environment right all the baptisms all the confessions all the um, weddings right that i have done just in this one building um, has been a great blessing and i remember someone told me um, when i was telling some of those stories to them that in italy um, for example there used to be when when uh, the bishop would assign a priest to a parish he would it would be, this priest goes to this parish, this priest goes to this factory, right? This priest goes to this per parish, this priest goes to this office building, right? Because people are in offices in their factories for most of the day. We have to find ways, not only as priests, but as lay men and women, to be living our faith and to be living our lives deeply embedded 
in the, with the, in the lives of others so that we can be witnesses, and that's a great blessing. There's a few principles that I, I wanted to share with you just specifically about media. Um, there's also going to I want to have time for questions and answers um, at the end as well. But very often I hear in conservative Catholic circles, um, oh, the media is bad, you know? Oh, the media is so biased. The media, and yes, it's true, the media is biased, and sometimes the media is bad. But thank God in the United States of America, our media, to the, with the, for the great majority of our media, is a business. Thank God, I say, because the ideology of a commercial business is actually in the favor of truth. What do I mean by that? Yes, there might be liberal bi bias in the media, and I believe that there is, um, mostly because of the education of the, um, of the anchors and of the reporters and of the executives. But the biggest bias out there still, and I hope it stays like this for a very long time, is the bottom line. And I say that's a very good thing, and that it's on our side because when we produce something that's truthful and that's compelling, people are going to want to buy it. When we produce something that is truthful and compelling and hopefully beautiful, people are going to buy it. What does that mean? It means that as Catholics who are interested in the media, we have to find ways to present the truth in a compelling way. And if we do it, I promise you the media will eat it up. The media will bring you on board. The media will love you. They will make you as whatever they want to make you into, as long as you're making money for them. Really, and that maybe that sounds very, very base or very crass, I don't know, but because the listener, the consumer, is looking for truth and looking for beauty and looking for goodness, if we can present it in a way that people can say, ah, that's what I want, we have the advantage. What are some elements? And this is just to show you how simple-minded the media are. This is the news media in particular, right? What are, this is a quiz for you guys. What are different, if, Let's say if a producer is sitting down there with, um, with a, a, a show, the 4 o'clock news hour, and th the ratings are not good. What are the five different elements that a producer or an executive would say, ah, oh, we've got to change this up to make it better? What would those, what, what would be, guess what five elements would be? I'm just trying to show you how simple-minded these business people are in reference to news media. What would be those five? Okay, when you're watching the news, what looks, what, what do you like or dislike? Uh, content could be another way of saying, who said content? Content would be the news story itself, right? So in other words, if the national news you know, is always talking about Steubenville. You know, people, you know, in New York City are like, what's that, right? Okay, bad news story, okay? Uh, 
Content, that was a, probably a bad example that I used, but anyway. Okay, the, the, the news story itself has to be compelling, right? That's the news story. What's another element? Presentation. More specific than presentation. What's that? Uh, what was that? The newscaster, okay? This is just kind of a, I'm making it very simplistic, so most of your answers are right anyway, but newscaster, what would be another one? The what? The format. The format uh, another way of looking at it would be, for example, the, um, the graphics. Okay, that's another one. You know, like what's on the bottom of the screen. What, like what's visually ap appealing. What's another one? Two more. Another one would be what they call B-roll or video. I've been in so many meetings in which of a story that says, uh, um, let's do a story about about uh, embryonic stem cells. Oh, great, yeah, we get to watch those Petri dishes again. No, let's not do that story, right? You know those Petri dishes? The same Petri dishes that are in every single story about science? It's a bad news story because it's, there's no, there are no gunshots, there are no, you know, there's no, right? B-roll or video, that's the fourth one, yes. The what? The genre. the genre. I would say the fifth one that I was going to say would be the, the guest or the person that's being interviewed. Okay? So those are five things. After that, I mean, they don't have much they can change. Right? They move around the host. They, they change the graphics. They change the news story. They change the guest. If we can provide as lay Catholic men and women if we can provide interesting stories, right? You're gonna go down and you're gonna go do, you're gonna do, uh, um, you know, spring break. I don't know, do, you, do the students still go down to beaches and things like that? What is it called? Sun Life. Sun Life, or whatever. No one's gonna do a story of, you know, oh, you know, 20 students from Franciscan University went down and did evangelism on the, no, no. <laughs> but it is very interesting in and of itself because it's totally countercultural. But what are you, how are you going to present the story? Well, you're going to get B-roll. You're going to get video. You're going to show students going up and actually having an encounter with somebody. And then you're going to tell the story. You're going to make it interesting. And I promise you that's a news story. Or when people complain about, why do they never cover the March for Life? I, say, I find that myself. I know, for example, in many newsrooms they say, we just don't do anniversaries because anniversaries are boring, right? Because you know it happened last year and you happen, know it happened next year. So does that mean it's not a story that there are hundreds of thousands of people marching? No, it doesn't. But it means we have to come up with a way to present things that are actually interesting. Does that make sense? So it's a, a, it's a new person who goes and makes a presentation. Or maybe it's um, a particular human story that comes, comes of it, whatever it happens to be. But the greatest bias of the media is money. And that is a very good thing for us, that we live in a democratic society in which we can have input. And not only that we can have input, but because we have the richness of the Catholic faith, because we have the richness of the great philosophical and theological foundation that we have, 
we can provide beautiful, good, and truthful things that people, consumers, want. There's a lot more that um, I would love to talk about, um, just, just to kind of finish things off, since um, being um, involved with the news channel, um, I was involved previously with, I was a member of the Legionaries of Christ, um, and um, I, for those of you who are not aware of um, that order, um, it was turned out to be a disaster in many ways. Lots of wonderful things, lots of wonderful people. But I was called into, I believe, or I believed at the moment at least, that God called me into a religious order. I remember going to Father Michael Scanlon. I was telling this to Father Terry at dinner. I went, I said, Father Michael Scanlon, should I enter this order? Should I, should I go visit this order? And all he said in his wisdom and his kindness and his charity is go through a door. If it's not for you, shut that door behind you. And go through another one. Well, the door that I entered turned out to be about 15 years as part of this religious order, and God gave me blessing, many blessings through it, but also there was another surprise, and that was the founder of the order turned out to be a big fraud. Um, and I say that with, certainly with great pain, right? Because that's not fun, right? You guys know this from the stories of your own families, right? Parents getting divorced. Mom, moms and dads not being faithful to each other. Um, betrayal at different levels, not just in family life, or struggling with your own faith, even though I go to Franciscan University. I say this because we can have great ideas of doing wonderful things for the church also in the media, but it comes down to the personal life. I thank God that um, through that time that God also um, allowed me to introduce me to a whole other aspect, and that was Cardinal Dolan um, invited me to come to the Archdiocese of New York. And let me tell you one story about Cardinal Dolan that is very personal, but I think maybe rounds out what we've been talking about tonight. Uh, he didn't know me very well. I had met him in Rome when I was there and he was there, but he was in Milwaukee at the time. I went and visited him. And I start, said, you know, uh, Archbishop Dolan at the time, I said, I don't, you know, I don't know if I should stay in this order or not. Um, you know, the, the Pope wants to renew it, but it's, um, I don't know if I'm called to that and this and that. And, um, he just said, stay with me for a week. And it was his last week before he came to the Archdiocese of New York. Okay, imagine what you know, your life is like the last week before you leave a diocese where you've been the last eight years, going off to be the new Archbishop of New York. The morning that he was leaving for New York in a private plane because a, someone had um, rented him this private plane, a benefactor, to get him to New York so he could get installed before the news media knew that he was coming. Um, he knew I had a flight that morning. It was Easter Sunday morning at 6 a.m. So that his lay driver wouldn't have to get up at 3 in the morning and take me to the airport. He got up, um, not at 3 in the morning, but before that, and he cooked me this huge breakfast of eggs and all the things he likes to eat. And then drove me to the airport, dropped me off at five in the morning, probably the last time he ever drove, so that his lay assistant driver wouldn't have to get up early on an Easter Sunday morning. Okay? On the morning in which his life was about to change forever. In the end, it doesn't matter whether we're writing books, 
It doesn't matter whether we're working in the media. It doesn't matter whether we're um, a doctor, a lawyer. It doesn't matter what we're doing. In the end, it comes down to love. Am I loving? Am I loving the people around me? Am I loving God? Um, am I living for myself or am I living for others? Am I living with my eyes set on heaven or am I living with my eyes set on personal success? Um, I've been um, very blessed with so many of these experiences and, and, many, and many more that um, I would love to share with you, but we don't have time. Um, but I know that next month God could call me to, or my bishop could call me, to go back and work in that parish in the Bronx with that bullet hole um, on the, in the front door of the rectory. And I hope, I think, I hope um, that even if that would be hard, because it would be a life change, um, that I would be equally as spiritually happy. God bless you. An initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind.